0: Welcome to the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, the premier online startup pitch contest where top climate tech and impact founders pitch VCs looking to fund world positive companies. If you're a founder looking for funding or a climate or impact investor interested in joining and investing alongside forward VCs, syndicate, and companies that move the world forward, please visit thestartuptank.com for more details and to apply. But now it's time to enter the tank. Hey everybody, welcome to the Startup Tank, the Climate Investor Pitch Show, brought to you guys by Forward VC. If you've never joined, we run Startup Tank, Dragon's Den, every two weeks or so to get climate companies on board. Let's. We've got a couple couple of background noises happening here, so let's get all the technical sorted out. So today we've got four awesome companies presenting for you guys, pre-seed to pre-series A, each looking to do big things in the in the focus of sustainability and climate impact. If you guys want to apply for one of our upcoming sessions to pitch to our climate VC panelists, our, our sharks, that's the startuptank.com. And if you're looking for help with building your company, acquiring customers, raising around, scaling forward.vc slash accelerator, you can check out our partner in climb accelerator program. Last but certainly not least, if you're looking for funding, we've got a database, thousand plus funds, incubators, accelerators, and CVCs focused on climate and clean tech. You can find it at forwardvc database, The number forwardvc database. We invest in and help companies move the world forward. Today we've got some awesome panelists on board: Neil Schneider with uh, Creative Destruction Lab. I'll give him a little bit of a, a spotlight and a shout out to share some more. And Hendrik with Mass Challenge Switzerland. You want to walk through your background quickly, Niels?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. You go first, sir. Okay, Uh, cool. Um, Yeah, hi, everyone. I'm uh, Niels. I lead the Climate Stream at the Creative Destruction Lab. Uh, We are a mentorship program for early-stage deep tech founders, uh, originally from Canada, running for 11 years now. We work with, like I said, very early-stage, so pre-seed, seed stage, Founders who have some breakthrough scientific research um, that they want to commercialize. So, we're there to help them. We kind of connect the founders with really experienced entrepreneurs, typically people who've built companies above $100 million value. Um, and we take cohorts once a year. So, if anyone yeah has questions for that, happy to connect afterwards.
2: So similar to what Niels is doing um, also multinational so we started off in Boston in the U.S mass challenge I'm the uh, head of the climate and sustainability uh, verticals um but I'm here from the Swiss uh um, office of the of mass challenge so yeah we take the same we take um startups at an early stage through to seed uh, normally less than about two million in in revenues or in funding um help them to scale up so it's uh, I think most of our work is done through our partners, sponsored by Nestle and Bula, Givordana is the main founding partners, but lots of multinationals that basically um, yeah help us kind of to, to grow. So um, similar business model to what Y Combinator and Techstars does, except we, uh, we are the largest of the lot that doesn't take equity. So here are 100% trying to find impact startups and help them to grow. Uh, reach out if you want to get in touch as well.
0: And they run a great program, certainly helpful for what we do at Forward VC with our accelerator, with the the various ecosystems that we have. If you're not part of our Climate Techies ecosystem, speaking of, there's 4,000 folks in Slack and WhatsApp. You can join at forward.vc slash techies. And we've got a resource hub. It's just forward.vc slash techies hub or just climatetechies.com. And you can find that, all of our resources, the databases, our climate solutions database, find corporates, find investors, find pretty much anything that you could possibly need. But today it's not about us. Today it's about you guys and... The companies. We've got some pretty awesome ones presenting. Today, we're going to throw a couple of loopholes, so to speak, or uh, wrenches into the, the system itself. So, investors if you're listening be sure you're at the startuptankcom live we're going to have the companies here posting their calendar links if you want to set up a meeting with them none of this is a solicitation yada yada etc cetera, etc cetera. but if you're a vc you're looking to meet and invest in these type of companies we recommend you set up meetings to do that so you'll get information there and then at the end of the program as well on youtube live we're going to have a poll uh, climate startup of the night let's see what the audience says let's see who gets and racks up the most votes so if you're working for one of the companies, the mom of one of the presenters, whatever it happens to be, get yourself over there so you can cheat and add add to the polls. Uh, Now we've got four companies, they'll have five minutes each to present, followed by about 10 minutes of Q&A, and we'll wrap things up with a climate startup of the night, both from the audience's perspective and from our panelists. I've done more than enough talking. I think it's time that we kick things over to our first company of the night, Philip, with, uh, with Brew Tea, you want to share the, the future of sustainable tea and why uh, why it's not working today?
3: Definitely. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll just share my screen here in a second.
0: Awesome. And you'll have five minutes to do so. And after that, if you're on the startuptank.com slash live, you'll see the calendar link if you want to book up. You want to book a meeting with him. And i'll give you a one minute warning as your time's running short we gotta be uh we gotta be hard with the five minute warnings or the five minute limits sound good
3: totally understandable can you all see my screen now
0: looking good take it away what's the future of tea my friend
3: (laughs) great so my name is philip kohlberg co-founder of brew and together with bordan we're taking tea to the next level and let's see if i can uh, switch slides here yeah so Quick background, Uh, people in general want to drink more tea, but the way we buy and prepare tea is outdated. It has a very negative impact on the environment. There's been several studies on this. One example is that only in the UK, they estimate that there's more than 3,500 tons of CO2 wasted every day only in the UK, because people heat up more water than they need.
4: Uh, In addition,
3: it's a very inconvenient process and uh, it's difficult to get the right quality from your tea when making it manually. So what we do is uh, that we uh, are launching uh, the all-in-one tea company that solves uh, the problem for tea drinkers and helping them to drink more tea. We help people uh, save energy and water when preparing their tea. Also, we save their time uh, so you can make tea in a more convenient way. And finally, very important, to premiumize your experience so that you get the right quality from your tea in a very simple way. How we do this is the base is our tea machine, which uh, has uh, patents granted already. Uh, it's tea at the push of a button. And you can make any kind of tea, loose leaf tea, tea bags, or throw in your own uh, mix of herbs and or ginger. Uh, and prepare tea at the right temperature, the right steeping time, and right, right amount of water. The extension of this is our own app through which the customer can uh, personalize their tea brewing experience. And we can leverage the data to understand what kind of tea they drink, what time of day, how much, in order to sell our own tea. Uh, and eventually also become a marketplace for selling other tea brands uh, in all in one place. We started a few years ago, actually, through a crowdfunding campaign and quickly pre-sold uh, 10,000 of our tea machines. Uh, we had some delays due to COVID, but this year we actually launched sales. We have shipped out to consumers closer to 4,000 machines right now. Generated a bit of revenue. We recently launched our own teas as well. And now we are looking to scale up uh, in order to uh, sell in more markets and launch future machines as well. We now have a round open, about 50% is already committed, uh, where we are looking for 1.5 million in order to scale up uh, basically our business. Uh, a lot goes into sales and marketing. We also want to overcome a little bit of a uh, bottleneck which is always the case when you have a, a, one of our components is a hardware product so uh, we are investing into that in order to scale up and uh, grow our business and get more people to enjoy tea in a more convenient way thank you very much and uh, let me know your questions
0: wow you nailed it in under four minutes very impressive philip while i bring in the other panelists who will have some questions and they it's a free-for-all for questions just jump in and throw them out there as you got them who were the investors you said you got half the round already committed
3: so we had a previous round uh last year when we raised the uh, 700 euros and uh, one of the investors there was loyal vc uh, and some private investors as well uh, so for this round, it's a network of business angels that have in committed the funds we have uh, received so far.
2: Philip, an interesting pitch. Um, I guess uh, two main questions. The first one, um, the USP. I was a little bit unclear as to as to what differentiates you from other. I guess um, why would I get your product and not just grab a kettle and uh, and brew it
3: uh well the kettle uh, it's a uh, the most used way of making tea absolutely but it doesn't make tea uh, it heats up water right. so it doesn't give you the convenience uh in the same way uh, as a you know a, a product a machine that makes the product for you so we compare ourselves more as a as the Nespresso of coffee, so to speak, that uh, it's uh, it you push the button and then you serve the product in your cup. No, uh, nothing else more is needed from you. But important to point out, that we don't use any capsules or pods because that has already been proven to not work in tea.
0: And not work sustainably. Exactly, exactly.
2: Interesting. Uh, oh if I can be cheeky enough to ask the second question, Um, we skipped over the team. Uh, Who who is in your team? Can I hear a little bit more about yourself and your co-founder? Yeah,
3: sure. So uh, my co-founder, let's start with him. He's the engineer and inventor of the tea machine. He's a passionate tea drinker and has a long background in the startup scene. Uh, So um, he's a great partner from that perspective. And he knows the machine inside and out. Uh, while me, on the other hand, I come from the beverage industry, been working for some of the world's biggest breweries all over the world uh, in sales and marketing. So we form a, a pretty good team. Uh, then we have uh, some additional team members. In total, we are seven now full time employees. And of course, we work with some agencies. And um, uh, I think you mentioned you were from Switzerland, right? And uh, we are sponsored by InnoSwiss uh, as well. Uh, nice. So, yeah. We have some great advisors through
2: them. I think that, yeah, sounds like a kick-ass team, excuse the French, but I think it's um yeah. something I put a bit earlier on as well, mentioning you're a serial co-founder with a strong team as well. It's uh it gives a lot of confidence. Yeah. yeah. Makes space for the others.
0: How's the footprint compared to other T solutions out there? I mean, I think Kettle, I think kind of minimum possible or minimum necessary product.
3: Yes, so uh, there are studies being looked into further in this area. They are actually investigating this on EU level now in order to, you know how they already have on fridges and ovens and so on, this energy rating. Um, This is not uh, yet available for these type of uh, devices such as Cookers or kettles, uh, so they are working to implement that. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, we 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 in our machine you only heat what you need, uh, so you save a lot of energy. Because the problem with kettles is that a lot of them have minimum water levels you need to fill, so you heat up like a full liter of water. But for your cup of tea, you only use 300 milliliters, and of course it takes a lot of energy to heat up all that water. Uh, And since tea is the most drunk beverage in the world after water, it all racks up into pretty massive volumes in or in terms of uh,
5: waste. Um, Can
1: I um, just like dive into that a little bit as well? Did I hear correctly that you said there's about 3500 tons of CO2 emissions created a day in the UK just from overheating tea?
3: Yeah, this was a study by the Energy Saving Trust in the UK, uh, where they estimated uh, over 3,500 tons of CO2 every day, um, and that's just the CO2. Then you have the water as well, because what uh, I, I need to look the number, but it was over 70% of people also admitted that they pour out the water after. So you heat up a liter of water, you use 300 milliliters, and then you pour out. 700, which is,
1: uh, of course, a big waste of water as well. Okay, interesting. Um, and then I guess, getting back to the the use, so is it, do you need to use uh, loose leaf teas? Does it only work for that? Can you put tea bags in there? Um, and how convenient is that process, I guess, for, for the consumer? Like, if I imagine scooping loose leaf tea out of a machine, you know, I'm not <laughs> sure how that works
3: yeah sure so with our machine you can use tea you like loose leaf tea or tea bags uh, and uh, about the cleaning uh, that's actually what uh, our patent is about that we have patents granted already in europe and the us uh, which uh, is about the cleaning process of the device between each cup of tea so it always stays fresh And this is a technology we took inspiration from the biotech industry, where, of course, it's very important to avoid uh, contamination of the liquids. Uh, So we used this technology and implemented it in a tea machine. And it works very
1: good. Matt, you look like you're going to say something.
0: I'm thinking, can you combine this with an espresso-type machine so you have a... Or better yet, an espresso press coffee maker. So you have a tea and espresso machine all in one. Is your, is your vision to sell the product and to sell the, these devices? Or is your vision to license the technology? Uh,
3: what I can say is that we've already had several requests for these type of uh, setups uh, from some of the big players. Uh, we are still early days, so I think we need to grow a little bit bigger uh, before it becomes a reality. But that's definitely a possibility and we have lots of ideas uh, on uh, future machines we want to develop smaller ones bigger ones fully automatic ones also for the horeca channel like restaurants hotels cafes we have had uh, quite a lot of interest but the first machine that we're launching now uh, or launched this year it, the, the main uh, idea of that machine is for home use but yes you can use it in other places as well and uh, in the future we'll see we're Hopefully, we'll have machines that combine uh, tea and coffee, and you know the ultimate uh, hotel room machine, for example.
2: So I guess that, that one number, thirty five hundred tons. Have you done an LCA or something similar to to look at where the uh, the main um, leader points are in, in your supply chain? So is is I mean, I guess 90 percent of your revenue so far has come from the machines themselves. Uh, but would it be long-term, the operation or the hardware that gives you the bigger impact on your total footprint?
3: Uh, no, so in all our financial projections, depending on how we estimate, T uh, T will, will eventually surpass uh, revenue uh, versus the machine. and uh, depends a little bit how we set up the strategy. Now, early days for us as a startup, we need to make a little bit of money on the machines uh, but uh, of course we can see a future where we lower our margins on the machine and uh, make it up on the tea instead
0: and that can you use any type of tea or do you have to use brew tea
3: no you can use any kind of tea and that's the the, the one of the key things that you're not forced into buying only our tea brand because that's something that tea drinkers don't like so, of course, it turns the whole thing around if you compare it to a capsule uh, selling company where you aim to have 100% uh, of your capsules being sold. Uh, for us, it's, it's the complete opposite. So, we, by having the machine, uh, we have the uh, direct communication with the customer. We can educate them. We can learn how they uh, consume tea and then uh, sell the right tea to the right person at the right time.
0: Pro tip, a monthly mystery box could be interesting here. You send out different types of tea. Hey, let's see what you like kind of thing. Because people, yeah. can, buy, people can buy any tea from anywhere. But what yeah, exactly. they, if they've already got you, maybe they want to experiment and see other ones they might like. Could be yeah. a subscription there.
3: Yeah, definitely. This is something we are actually launching pretty soon. We have started sales of our own tea, but we're starting a subscription as well as sales of bundles. And these, as you described, testing kits and so on.
0: If you fail, why will it be?
3: Oh, good question. Right now, top of our minds is funding because uh, we have, as I mentioned, we have delivered close to 4,000 machines to customers. The feedback is very positive. Everything is working. We have a low percentage of defective machines. So for us, it's really about scaling up and try to launch in more markets. And then right now, the funding is our uh, main uh, pain point.
0: Any last
2: questions, folks? Possibly, I guess ultimately the business model—it's—it's—it's it's, it's going to be a mix of subscription and of of hardware, similar to what you are seen before.
3: Yeah, exactly. We we we're starting sales of the subscriptions uh, within the next couple of weeks, um, and uh, yeah, so far we are also making some money on the machine sales. Um, but yeah, we know, for example, Nespresso, they made a loss on every machine they sell and then they make it up on the capsules. Uh, we are not quite there yet when we are able to do that. But uh, of course, we foresee a future where we can lower our own margins on the machine and make it up on tea sales uh, instead. Even though we will not 100% of tea used in our machine will not be from us, it will be from other tea brands. Um, but that is also a big reason why people will choose to have our machine in their home. And so okay. then it's about uh, for us to be, if, do, will we be able to manage to convert 10% or 20% of machine owners to also buy our tea? Uh, that's something uh, that will become a main KPI for us. Uh, but uh, of course, what I can say is also that if we manage to convert 10% of machine owners into also buying our own tea on a subscription, then we're all already going to be a massive success
2: number one last quick question yeah why hasn't anyone done this before
3: um because they tried to implement the capsule system uh, there have been uh, you know uh, nestle themselves tried it of course uh, but they are are cancelling that product it was called the special tea but the tea drinkers were not uh, willing to pay for those expensive tea capsules and the quality was not good enough it didn't taste tea because tea needs to steep you cannot get around that there has been other examples for example there was a german company called forwerk who made a machine called temiel uh, they missed the target in my opinion i believe because they started sales of that machine at 699 euros i think um, and in, on top of that, try to force the consumer to only buy their tea. They have this kind of QR code system you scan on the machine and uh, so on. So we come in at a lower price point, give the customer the freedom to choose any tea they like, and we instead are the friendly company who help you enjoy tea in a better way uh, and hope to gain some uh, trust from them and so that they try our tea as well.
0: How long does it take to brew the tea? Last question.
3: It varies very much from tea to tea. Uh, I mean, you can have a mild uh, premium green tea that you steep for one minute. If you want a super strong black tea to wake you up in the morning, you steep it for three minutes, four minutes. You know, it's all up to. Uh, I'm just thinking you got like a.
0: Tea. I'm just thinking you got like a tea party. And it's like John, Fred, Aunt Lucy. What kind of teas you want? Everybody wants different teas. You're kind of lined up with that machine for a while. That might be one thing to to consider
3: yeah just quick comments on that is we do have a function to brew bigger quantities of tea as well so you can brew up to 1.4 liters of tea in one go and-
0: ah, okay yeah. perfect then we can have the barbie tea party and we're good to go yeah Then, uh thanks uh thanks for pitching philip be sure startup tank so the startup tank.com live post your calendly link over there for any investors who are interested and if only only really reach out if you're interested or could be very helpful for philip otherwise you can probably guess his email address it's like every founder name at email or domain tom and now let's uh let's move things on we did food what for
3: here in the chat
0: perfect but put it in the put it in the youtube one so all the attendees can see it as well not just the not just the folks in the zoom oh. and we did we did a we did a little bit of tea hopefully that got you ramped up for uh accelerating the ev transition bill with evil electric you want to go next? Sure,
4: that sounds great. Can you hear me all right?
0: We hear you loud and clear, and we got a big truck in the background. What are you doing?
4: All right. All right. Now you can see my slides too, right?
0: Looking Thanks. good. Take it away. Perfect.
4: All right. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, Bill Beverly, co CEO, CTO of Ev Electric. So we are electrifying and advancing uh, through enablement of rapid technology transfer of existing trucks that are already on the road. Uh, we're talking medium duty trucks, commercial trucks. So. Uh, things bigger than an Amazon truck but smaller than an 18-wheeler for example. They call it the messy middle mile uh, and we're doing it in a novel way by taking existing trucks that are on the road, removing their messy diesel powertrains, upgrading them to 100% electric and getting them back out rapidly into the hands of our fleet owners who are being not only mandated to change but are interested in uh, increasing their operational benefit and savings from using electric systems. Uh, so uh, real quick before we go into the pro- the problem, Uh, My background is in engineering, last 20 years in engineering, 10 years in automotive, Uh, 10 years after that in uh, the electrification sector, working for top tier passenger OEMs here in the United States. We're based in the Los Angeles area as Ev electric, founded in 2019. My co-founder partner is Jackson Alvarez, who's an amazing uh, business and entrepreneur himself. Uh, And we both met at a previous company where we were working on battery manufacturing for a lot of these players in the space, competitors and enablers. So why is this an important problem for us to solve? So right now, if you just take a look at the United States, for example, there are several initiatives around electrification that are providing a squeeze for a fleet owner that's operating trucks like the one in this picture and the one behind me. Uh, There's positive attention, which is the Inflation Reduction Act. There's a lot of money, incentives, tax rebates to move to electric to increase your operational benefit and lower your operational costs. But there's also negative benefits in the minds of the fleet owners. By 2040, you have to purchase a new zero emissions vehicle. So they're getting squeezed in and trying to understand how they can adopt these technologies. And if you look at California as a matter of example, one of the most progressive states in the United States, How are they doing delivering products like the ones in this picture? Well, only at the end of last year, there were about 150 trucks on the road registered with the California uh, Department of Motor Vehicles. So the industry is not doing a great job delivering these solutions clear and presently to the fleet owners. So a lot of fleet owners are just waiting for the transition to come a little bit more presently. But some of them are actually incentivized to move a little faster because of what the Inflation Reduction Act secures for them. But when they open up the market, the, uh, their awareness to the market, they recognize that they have to pay sometimes about two and a half to three times the cost or the price of a brand new diesel truck. So sixty thousand, you're looking at one hundred and fifty to one hundred and eighty thousand dollars for a brand new battery electric vehicle. So the way that we do this is we start with the diesel system, we remove the diesel componentry, we replace it with electric in the target of two days. We use modular technology so that we start with, for example, an Isuzu platform but we can move to a Hino, or Peterbilt, a Navistar, what have you. Because we start with a system that's already been on the road for five, 10 years, although these trucks have been designed for 30, 40 years of usefulness, all of the systems that limit that life have been removed. So we start with the lower cost because we can push those systems back out and uh, and, and get them back into the into the field, but we also extend their life for a minimum of 10 additional years using top tier supplied systems from CATL, Dana, the same exact suppliers that are already providing systems and solutions to to mainstream OEMs around. What makes us unique here is we already have a battery pay-per-use model as well because we're battery industry experts. We can remove the upfront cost of the battery from the system and really, really uh, make a benefit to the small business owners looking to to reduce their investment. The way that we make money is a hardware plus uh, subscription basis. It's a kit. It either gets installed directly into the truck for the, uh, the vehicle owner, the fleet owner themselves, or the fleet owner requests a truck, which we supply through our vehicle repurposing partners, the world's largest vehicle recycling partner here in the United States, at least. Uh, that's our first partnership. Uh, and then we move into a subscription where we deliver these kits into operation. And that includes a over-the-air uh, enabled and data enabled power uh, or powertrain uh, approach that includes battery leasing, like I mentioned, removing that at front cost, but all the following fleet services that a fleet owner demands, including fleet uh, intelligence service and maintenance, and then through our partners, a lot of the other ecosystem that helps them enable the electrification journey. Uh, Very quickly here in terms of the snapshot of what our technology looks like, it's a combination of components that we source, but we control with our embedded controls, our architecture design, and our process for installation that, once you take all that data from the system and you enable it through a cloud platform, it enables many features and functions that can be deployed over the years of operation to continue to reduce cost and increase value for the fleet owner. Uh, the way that we scale is we actually scale by not creating churn and burn factories. We actually partner and we standardize kits and we extrapolate those kits with these partners. We did this- in One minute Mexico warning. A group of Modelo partners uh, we built a truck down in Grupo Modelo's operation, Heiser busch is the parent company. So we've proven that the, rate, the way that we can scale is an IKEA-type model for these electrification kits in situ. The reason we can do this is because we have a team that has over 130 years of combined EV-relevant experience. Everybody on this uh, team slide has actually been part of a full development scale for an EV product, and we're proud to have them on board. And then finally, uh, what we've been able to do is we've grown by bootstrapping. We're currently in a second close of a $3 million seed on a safe note so we can expand the operations and team, get into a larger facility and secure the purchase orders that we currently have for new product. Finally, actually, uh, the biggest thing in the bottom right corner here, we just, uh, last Tuesday, it was announced that we're entering negotiations for a potential $15 million investment post seed, post this round that I'm currently closing. Uh, and we're hoping that scales us very quickly into our 2024 and 2025 uh, deliveries. All right, thank you.
0: Awesome, thanks. Great job on the presentation. While I'm bringing everyone else back in, uh, panelist wise, are there any potential right to repair problems? I know certain tech companies like to cause issues here.
4: That's a great question. So um, we actually enable a a third-party technician and service center model So a lot of what we're doing in the process of defining how to install these kits and and solutions is actually engaging groups like Garage Gurus, UTI, and establishing standards around uh, the technology repair, the warranty repairs, things like that. So we can depend on these third parties as well. We don't actually see our fleet owners doing a lot of those repairs internally. The larger fleet owners like ABM Bev, for example, will have a, a maintenance shop internally, but we're training directly that technician base instead of having to go to a B2C market. We're totally B2B.
0: Okay. Second obvious question: Who's the fifteen million with?
4: Seismic Capital. Uh, that was a. Oh, you can even thing. announce
0: it already. Okay, I interesting. Can.
4: Yeah, they did a uh, they did a press release last Tuesday. Uh, it is an intent to invest. So right now we're enter get, we're entering a negotiation for the post seed round. So this is our Series A growth round. Uh, right now I'm hustling as fast as possible to close this safe note for uh, for the second close of our seed. So it's. It's a fun spot. It's great to be in two spaces at one time. so
2: nice pitch, and I think the tractions uh, really give, give me a lot of evidence. Um, so the three million, I guess to start with is proving up the what what would eventually turn into the fifteen million. Uh, but then this becomes a scaling challenge. So you're selling kits. Will you be building a factory to build the kits to then send them out?
4: Yeah, great question. So the first thing we're doing is we're localizing in the facility here in Los Angeles. Uh, we just uh, actually moved in a couple of weeks ago. It's an 18,000 square foot facility. Uh, we're going to be building a, a, a pilot line there. So a representative process for the bays that we eventually want to build in for our customers. Uh, so once we do that, we control the process, we control, uh, you know, the, the materials. And then we start replicating that by doing it actually with these scalable partners. Like, for example, Napa Truck Centers or, uh, you know, the Pet Boys Auto of, of uh, the medium duty truck center as well. So. Yes. Short answer. That's exactly where the three million is going.
2: And I guess looking a step beyond your exits, looking like, or well, your goal for an exit is looking at what strategy? You're going to sell the entire thing? You want to own it for a while longer?
4: Yeah. I mean, we want to deliver product. We want to get to at least a thousand vehicles out in the market. Uh, that thousand vehicles at about you know hundred hundred and thirty thousand dollars MSRP per gets you very quickly to a billion dollar hardware valuation basis. Uh, or a billion dollar in, in revenue, I should say. Uh, we also want to scale the organization in a sector where we're really we're really validating the software back end of this because just like the previous uh, uh, startup, we're doing a hardware uh, solution up front that really scales our ability to tell a story with the data that we're logging from every component on that system. So really, the roadmap going forward is the software side, but you have to have the hardware to tell that full data story. You can't just apply a SaaS model on trucks and get the full details of how the battery is operating, for example. So that all precludes us wanting to make sure we push this as far and as long as possible to be able to tell that data story and show that true value going forward. Uh, More than likely, we're expecting to see a significant market consolidation around the 26 to 27 timeframe. Uh, That is when larger players in the commercial vehicle space, commercial OEMs are going to be consolidating and looking at uh, potential acquisition companies uh, of companies.
1: Do you have a follow-up, Henrik?
2: No, I was going to say the answer to my questions. Niels.
1: Thanks. Um, cool. I mean, yeah, going back to the, the scaling question, I guess, can you tell us a bit more about where the hardware comes from, who develops those components? Um, yeah, I'll follow on from that.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So my OEM background from the passenger vehicle space means I know where to focus from the vehicle application perspective, the integration of components that have already been developed, for example. So CATL is our battery supplier. Dana is our motor supplier. These are big names that are already delivering within the commercial vehicle space and the passenger vehicle space. So we've secured long-term agreements with them, supply agreements direct with those suppliers. Everything we do is done the way that an OEM would do it in a traditional passenger vehicle space or it's written to a requirements basis. You know, We have a feature and function or a target performance need at the vehicle level and a supplier requirement document is de- developed for each one of the components. So we're able to actually procure components that meet that specification from not only CATL, but uh, the competitive landscape and the supply chain as well, uh, and be able to diversify our risk and reduce our risk from having to wait for a potential delivery snafu that comes from one or two type of suppliers. Uh, but those are the two big names we have. We also uh, procure some components from a couple of smaller companies, NetPower, for example, uh, EMP. So these are all component suppliers that have been serving the passenger vehicle space for at least the last ten to fifteen years.
1: Okay, awesome. Um, and can you tell me a bit about your IP, IP strategies, and what have you developed yourself? How is it protected?
4: Yes, so there's three main strategies from the IP perspective. One is the electrical architecture. If I go back to that slide visual that had a snapshot of the, uh, the the truck itself, how the components are interlaced to communicate with each other and the actual form of that data communication strategy. That is the primary IP behind our organization, that architecture. Secondary to that is how you build that architecture when we are not the ones building it, but we're relying on partners to do it. So the process as well. And the third thing is the algorithms that come out of that data story of all the components that are telling, you know their operational uh, characteristics in the cloud format. So the predictive analytics, the machine learning uh, all the post-processing that goes on those are the three main buckets. Now, right now we've developed these components through uh, our go-to market So We actually have product on the road. We actually have deliveries. So part of this $3 million safe note round the seed round is for us to be able to actually secure and formalize our patents. We engaged pre- preliminary patents about last year, but it was determined by us and by our council that we might as well just deliver systems and actually produce the technology so that we could be done with the experiment- experimentation stage and actually have more formidable claims. So we're ready to do that. And that's one of the first things we'll do with use of funds as well. So awesome.
1: um, maybe one more question, then I'll hand over to Matt again. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the the performance of the systems? I guess, you know, the question everyone's mind is like, what's the range of, of that solution, and, and how long does it take to charge them?" Those good factors?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad that we asked this after the five-minute pitch, because uh, <laughs> that'll take a, a separate conversation. Um, our systems are designed for the middle mile, and that middle mile, why they call it the messy middle is because it's not significantly dependent upon large range. Uh, it's actually a lot of idle time, a lot of back and forth uh, time that the vehicle never le- leaves Los Angeles, for example. It never leaves an urban location. So our drivers, our fleet owners in class 3, 4, 5 vehicles, so from 10,000 pound fully loaded to 20,000 pound fully loaded, to be specific, they're looking for solutions that meet a day of operation. And that's about 80 to 100 miles of operation, right? So if we can deliver a system, which our system is is uh, is aiming to deliver 120 miles of fully loaded operation, then at the end of the day, that fleet owner can actually charge on a level two AC charger for about Uh, 13.2 kilowatts, it takes about eight hours, but the operation is done, it's an overnight charge. If that doesn't work, they can charge in less than one hour on our DC fast charging, which is one of our USPs. We fast charge faster than any other truck provider in this space. So just under an hour that could be done over a lunch period, for example. But like I said, about 120 miles of fully loaded uh, uh, range. Um, And then also um, being able to climb mountains or hills, for example, in some areas, one of our markets I didn't talk about is a market adjacent. It's Mexico City, it's Mexico proper, and then also Colombia. There's a significant gradability challenge in those countries. Uh, we've made sure that our specification and our components can actually secure about 25 to 30 percent grade uh, under full load as well. So those are some of the specifications of our technology.
1: I'm sorry, I said I only have one, but now you've you've raised another question. In my head is some. Um, does your system or is it in the roadmap at least to? be able to recuperate some energy from going downhill.
4: Yeah, so any any electric motor uh, has the ability to regen and recuperate. Uh, our system already has that in there. So what we do directly coupled it with our powertrain. Anytime you're off throttle, off pedal, that system will engage. It'll actually save you brake wear over time. Uh, and it'll actually give you a bit of a percentage of uh, of charge back to the system, between 3 and 7%, depending on your driving use case. So we have that benefit. You did ask a question about performance. I should say that our first customer used this truck behind me for a period of six months, 99% uptime and over 6,000 miles. Uh, and that's what caused them to purchase 10 more uh, after they finished that pilot. So we're feeling pretty good about our ability to uh, to compete in this space.
2: Awesome. Got one about your market. So I think um, you mentioned 20, 25 years is the average uh, life of a truck. Uh, and we're seeing a transition from general uh, combustion engines to electric and other drivetrains as well. Um, what happens when all the trucks... Bingo. Um,
4: yeah, I was waiting 20%. for it. What happens when the market catches up? Mm-hmm. So that that's part of the reason why we're so uh, keen around the data story and why what our technology is doing right now is it's really exploiting the fact that we have stranded assets available to us on the market to electrify faster than waiting for the commercial OEMs to incentivize themselves. So... Commercial OEMs in this space, like Asuzu, for example, they're doing great things, but they've been doing the same thing for the past 50 to 60 years, and suddenly it's being mandated to happen. It's not going to happen overnight, but let's just say it does. Uh, In that case, we have a technology that is ready to be provided at a tier one level, if that's a solution that they're looking for. Uh, We can become an OEM and actually procure a brand new chassis and cabin so we can start from scratch. Or with, like I said, a target of a thousand vehicles that have been on the road in the next three to four years, we actually can tell, we can just become a software organization and partner with OEMs and tell them how their uh, how their assets are going to be performing in markets like what we're doing right now. So we, we've we diversified our future by, by having a total story from both the hardware side and the data side to understand where uh, where that takes us in the next few years.
0: I think you missed the fourth diversification, which is going to the players who are lagging in the space and saying, you can kill your competitors and replace your existing unsustainable business by making this the new Kia trucking division.
4: 100%, Matt. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll even un, you know one-up that a little bit. There's a future of vehicle-to-grid technology, meaning if you see these technologies as just batteries on wheels essentially there's incentive that's going on in the united states for uh, from the inflation reduction act to be able to provide energy that's left over in this operation back into the grid so to be able to abate some of the utilities demands with significant cost of accessing power with what's already available around them right so that becomes a revenue stream for some small fleet owners and it's going to take some of these commercial oems a long time to understand that dynamic because again now they have to go deeper in their systems than they've ever had to do traditionally. And, and that's just going to take time and, and uh, an employee base that they're really struggling to find. Mm-hmm.
0: So Hendrik asked a question which was actually tangential to my question. My question was not the OEMs catching up. My question was for every vehicle that you electrify and for every new electric truck on the road, your market gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. You are in a way a transition technology. I don't know a if that's something that kind of worries you or potential investors and b how your technology plugs into potential autonomous uh, autonomous trucks and the issues with having third-party suppliers having lots of different uh touch points into something that can drive itself off a bridge
4: yeah no those are good points so First off, the size of the market, we're talking 331 million vehicles across the road, anywhere across the world, right, in this commercial vehicle market. Uh, So it's significant not one OEM is going to be able to do it over the next century. Uh, And what we're doing is we're aiming for 10,000 vehicles over the next five years, right? So we're taking an incredibly small chunk out of this this significant market. And with that 10,000, we can diversify and become, like I said, many of those things. The other thing is, we are well equipped to support autonomous driving. We're not diving in bullishly on it ourselves, because we own the electrical architecture and the controls of that vehicle. We can work with partners that are actually doing the autonomy, uh, the, the actual autonomy management. We can bring them in as a as a subordinate partner to our powertrain system, uh, and we can work with them. So that's something we can explore. It's not something we're diving into. Uh, the medium duty markets is kind of different compared to the uh, the long haul market when we're talking about trucks that go, you know, Pony Express style across the United States or across countries uh, because their duty cycles are so so uh, rhythmic or dynamic, I should say. Right. Stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. That presents a significant challenge for autonomy to catch up to. So it might be something that um, that we explore sooner rather than later. But right now we're just bullish on focus on getting that 10,000 vehicles as fast as possible and converting the first movers in this space and, uh, coming up for air later.
0: Awesome. Any last questions, folks? Sounds interesting. And remember, if you guys are watching, Bill's going to post a, a calendar link or an email in the LinkedIn, uh, in the YouTube chat, so startuptank.com slash live, as well as we'll have a poll at the end, so you can vote on your favorite company of the night, and we'll see who gets all the, all the cheerleaders on board. So be sure to call your people in. Uh, now it's time for us to do a quick halftime break. So if you guys don't know about us, Forward VC, we run kind of, we're trying to build the the platform that Climate Tech and Clean Tech is built on. We have our startup tank events. We've got our Climate Accelerator Partner in Climb program. We've got our Climate Techies Hub solutions database of 350 plus, our Slack and WhatsApp networking communities. Uh, our corporate programs are all of whatever. We basically are trying to bring all of the stakeholders together to help you along your climate journey, be that finding customers or finding decarbonization solutions or finding companies to invest in, et cetera, et cetera. More details at forward.vc. Or if you want to find our resources hub, it's just climatetechies.com. There you can find everything that we got, and hopefully that will help you along your journey. Be sure to share this with a friend. If you find it interesting and subscribe on YouTube, just thestartuptank.com slash YouTube. So you don't miss a thing. But we have two great companies left. So I want to not ramble on for too terribly long. And I would hand things over next to Matt with uh, Hoppy Food Brands. Matt, do you want to uh, share what you guys are doing on sustainable food of the future?
6: Absolutely. Go ahead
5: and share the screen with you real quick.
0: And yes, for anyone who needs a joke, we got the other hairy, curly Matt on and ready to uh, <laughs> ready to pitch.
6: Happy to be having a a doppelganger on here with me. Makes it that much
0: easier. Makes it easier, brownie points.
5: Yeah, Uh, let me see here. Are you able to see my screen yet?
0: There we go, looks like it's
6: working, started the screen sharing and we are good. Take it away. Awesome, awesome. Uh, okay, so thank you so much for having me. So my name is, is Matt Beck. I'm the co-founder of Hoppy Planet Foods. Uh, and Hoppy Planet is a sustainable protein fortification company that leverages our proprietary acheta protein platform to uh, address the increasingly dire need to shift the sources of global protein consumption. Uh, the company is founded out of a blend of personal and professional passions. So I spent the first six years of my career leading sales and strategy at, at Frito-Lay and PepsiCo. Uh, While I was getting my MBA at Kellogg uh, Northwestern School of Management, uh, I was recruited by Google to lead food and beverage partnerships with major global companies like Mondelez uh, and Kellogg's. And uh, over the course of that time, I learned quite a few things. I was able to combine them with my deep personal passion for sustainability to develop a company and and a functional food ingredient in the cheddar protein that solves for dramatically increasing consumer demands and, and global needs. I can tell you definitively that the global protein supply is racing headfirst into a brick wall. Today, animal protein consumption consumes about 70% of all freshwater and agricultural land supplies globally, and at the same time releases about 14.5% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Now, this is already putting immense resource strain and demand on areas ranging from the American Southwest to Singapore to Israel. This isn't just third world country problems. These are actually happening in the first world countries we live in today. Now, despite this massive demand, global protein consumption is expected to increase by 64% in the next 25 years. So now you don't have to be a mathematician to know that you can't actually increase 70% by 64%. There are quite literally not enough resources on the planet to feed the, the, the growing human population demand for protein. That is, of course, unless we were to switch and convert over to a highly efficient, highly environmentally sustainable, and very accessible forms of protein. And that is exactly what our Echetta Protein platform does. So Echetta Protein is 66% protein by weight compared to, say, beef, which is about 17%. Its production requires 99% fewer land, water, and greenhouse gas emissions resources uh, than typical traditional proteins do. And it's not a technology of the future. Our protein is actually in market. It is cost competitive and it is immediately scalable. A cheddar protein is our proprietary protein platform. It is a cricket based protein that is created through a proprietary process that yields a functional food ingredient with the wide usability of flour while carrying the nutritional load of complex animals. Now, if you've heard of insect proteins before, you might um, might think, okay, why have I heard this or what makes this different? Just a quick touch for you is what you've probably heard of is insects as an agricultural feed ingredient. That means it's being fed to cows and aquaculture and and pets. Uh, And that means it has no context of taste, texture, aroma, or color. Those are actually all really, really bad qualities of typical insect protein. Our proprietary processing directly impacts every single one of those to make them a very viable, very usable human food technology that is actually a one-for-one swap with flour and grains. Now, to prove that that actually helps us deliver on consumer demands and it hits the things that Gen Z and millennial consumers and eaters around the world care about, we actually launched an MVP product, uh, a brand of products in the US retail stores. And we picked the most antithesis market we can think of which is the heartland mid- middle of the United States and meat and potato country. And the results we've gotten have been resoundingly positive. So, in about two years in market, we're carried, our branded products are carried in about 200 major grocery stores. Our protein is being used in food service and by third party wholesale uh, manufacturers. Our velocities are at or above our different uh, various uh, partner benchmarks. Our unit economics have actually flipped to cash flow positive earlier this year. So, we're actually accruing cash with every unit we sell. And we're doing about a half a million dollars in sales this year. And while those are all really interesting and, and really impactful, you can see the top of the screen is what we actually sell in market here today. The breadth and expansion of the of the cheddar protein platform is what makes it such an exciting opportunity. Us and our food service partners have developed products ranging from pastas to ramen noodles to bread, fruit bites, jerkies, and potato chips, all leveraging a cheddar protein in different forms and functions. And so when we think about the broad use case One minute warning, and ability to, to uh, fortify with a cheddar protein, We consider it a necessary uh, protein source to compete in the $1.7 trillion animal protein industry. When we think about fortification, we know that when the world was short iodine, we started fortifying salt. When we're short protein with a gap today and growing in the future, we can fortify foods with a cheddar protein. Uh, we're doing this with a, with a team that is very focused and built on, on what we do. You know my background, Ali is our co-founder who handles all of our branding and communication and Zach is our CEO for operations. We're backed by a team of advisors and investors who all have a keen experience in the food industry, building platforms and brands. And that's what brings us to, uh, to our actual ask. We're raising a million dollars and an $8 million valuation. 250000 of that has already been committed by existing uh, investors today. And that money is primarily going to be used to accelerate our top line. Now that we flip to cash flow positive economics, so it's primarily uh, outside business development support on a contractual basis, solidifying. And time portfolio. is up.
4: Really
0: one
6: one thing. As I bring the other investors
0: in, you mentioned Asheta yeah. quite frequently, and Cricket yeah. only came up once. How much of your sales do you think are the are the result of the the branding side of of that? Because I think it's certainly necessary in terms of, uh, insect protein, but if I'm buying, if I'm Joe Schmo in the middle of the country, buying a Shetta, um, whatever it happens to be and eating it. And then someone tells me, you know, that's cricket, dude, (laughs) I'm going to be pissed.
6: Yeah. So interestingly, what we find is that people actually typically don't care. What they care about is the functional benefits that you get from the ingredient. And so you see this actually similar concept apply in other food, uh, functional food ingredients that have scaled quite rapidly. You see things like collagen and vital proteins. You see uh, fungus and mycelium with meaty. What you're doing is, is when you focus on the things that people, the reasons they buy, added protein, functional gut health benefits, sustainability benefits, they purchase because of you're delivering value to them and their families, where it comes from is actually often irrelevant. So the fact that you don't lead with it is actually what drives the consumer interest.
0: Oh, no I, I think it's brilliant um and congrats on congrats on that I would hand things over to Niels to go first this time
1: sure. thanks Matt uh both Matts basically um uh, good good presentation um one of the questions that I may have missed this is um on your like product solution fit you outline all the issues that come from livestock rearing and Then if I look at your product palette, I think jerky was the only product that is technically a livestock protein and you make a lot of cookies and flowers and so on. What does your product roadmap look like? Do you anticipate that you will be replacing actual meat-based proteins or do you
6: rely on a change in consumer behavior? So yeah, so it's a great question. So we actually don't intend on coming out with say a burger while you could use it as a, a, the, the protein in a burger blend. There's quite a lot of people focusing on, on, on that part of the market. We look at it from a dietary protein consumption standpoint. When you think about you need to consume 40 or 50 grams of protein in a day, the need to eat a steak is far less important if your ramen noodles have 10 or 12 grams of protein in it as opposed to none. Uh, or the need to add chicken into the dish changes. And so when we think about that, that's actually on the minds of folks when we speak to the Economic Board of Trade in, in Singapore, they think about that and in a number of countries around the world, it's how do we meet our dietary needs, not how do we meet our meat consumption needs.
1: Okay, so you're anticipating that there will be that kind of exchange. People substitute meat for plant-based proteins and, and you can fit into that market.
6: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Okay, understood. Cool. And then you said you had like a proprietary process for making these crickets. I think there's, you know, there's a couple of cricket companies out there, some making mints and so on. Um, can you tell me a bit more about, you know, your your IP again, similar to the question I asked earlier, like, where does it lie? What's the IP strategy? Maybe a bit on, on the development as well, like
6: who's, you know,
1: developed the recipe?
6: Yes. Yeah. So the the protein itself is the uniquely different because of the way that we process it. So it's through from start to finish, the processing, the processing, aids, the acids and the enzymes that we use to naturally uh, change that all all of those sensory elements of the protein. That's what our, our patent exists around. And the reason that we patent the process is because it means we're not beholden to having to raise our own insects. It means we can actually source from anywhere in the world. And it also means we can process in anywhere in the world so we don't have to build our own facilities. To do that, we get to hold the, the magic sauce in between. It's kind of a, almost like a like a Coke uh, and their bottlers type of scenario, right? You own the way to make the final product that nobody else can go do. And when we do that, it means we can also tweak portions of it to deliver different products for different needs. So if someone needs a higher protein output, we can strip out some of the fat. If they need something with a different taste or or, or aroma profile, we can tweak pieces of, of the processing aid. We've developed our our branded products to help showcase the market about how widely applicable and, and how fast people uptake this. But the ingredient platform side is what really makes us, uh, have a powerful fast scale, uh, on the other side of it. If, if Mondulis decided they wanted to come out with a, a product line using a cheddar protein, right. Our, 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 you get your kind of hockey stick type, type of effect.
0: What products lines are you seeing the biggest pull on?
6: Yeah. So the easiest way for folks to, uh, Consider a cheddar protein. It happens to be in the baked world, which is why we started there. It, it they they think of it as a flour and a one for one swap, and that's why we talk about it as a one for one swap with that. um Also, grains happen to also be one of the highest volume foods that are used in the world, and so it's easy to think about different ways to go about using it, and that's what we lead with as well. We jump in. I guess cool. p- oh, sorry. Yeah, jump in, Henry.
2: I guess uh, circularity. So you're not targeting initially the, uh, or I guess to start with, probably you are growing your own but your position is more the processing of the crickets into something else. So then when you're looking at the end to end impact, do you have, have you done LCA's already looking at the um, total emissions for the crickets versus other products? And I guess another point on that is, is feedstocks. So you're looking to tie directly into replacing animal producers in general. So
6: using existing feedstocks
2: to feed the crickets.
6: Yeah. So two, two great questions. So we, uh, we rely on, on some of the studies and benchmarks that that our suppliers have done. So we know, you know, one of the easiest ways to think about it is when we talk about land resources and water resources, uh, insects are grown in indoor vertical farms. Think about the way that you might grow spinach or, or strawberry. So on a single acre, you can grow multiples of what, what you could do from, from, let's say, cattle rearing and production. So we know there's a massive land savings. From a water saving standpoint, crickets actually uh, are the main source that we use. Uh, they actually don't need any added water. They get most of all the water they need from the food that they eat. So there's this dramatic you know, 99.9% savings that you get just from the fact that you, they're cold blooded and you don't have to feed them. Uh, their feed uh, will vary depending on the supplier. There are uh, The largest ones tend to use uh, effectively like a, a a chicken feedstock, same thing you would feed. It's like a kind of a corn-based or or, or vegetable-based feedstock that you can do. There are others that um, actually grow theirs off of food waste. Uh, That's a a really exciting potential to increase the circularity of the industry overall, though that does make it a little more challenging to ensure the consistent output of cricket that you get on the other side. Uh, We leave that to them to make sure they're delivering uh, the products to specs, but there are multiple ways to come to the same output of it, yeah.
0: What's the energy efficiency of the process with a cricket versus with traditional meat?
6: And so in terms of uh, making the the protein powder your mean, as, uh, as opposed to otherwise, well, I mean, so if
0: your solution's better, I I see the I see the water saving side. I can see I can see some of the energy saving side as well. But let's say apples and oranges. You've got I don't know pigs one place, and you've got crickets another place. How, if you are having to feed those crickets, how much of the actual feedstock or calories that are going in are then coming out?
6: Yeah, great question. So it takes about 1.6 pounds to get one pound of cricket on the other side. So it's a, a significantly high from an input output standpoint. If you were to think about that from uh, a, a, a cattle standpoint, uh, you, you'd be looking at something like um 600 pounds to get a pound of output on the other side. And, and it's better for chicken and and better for pigs, but, but still not as good as cricket. Uh, one of the reasons being that crickets are actually cold blooded. So they don't have to waste any of their energy on uh, this is just insects in general. They don't have to waste energy on maintaining homeostasis. You just make sure you keep them in a nice, um, effectively insulated room and they kind of live their lives happily without actually having to burn any excess calories on anything, but growing.
2: I guess the next question on that um the waste where does it go
6: yeah so uh What's waste like? from the uh, cricket rearing side is what we leave to the growers that actually the, the waste is actually something called frass it's a, it's an output that's actually an organic fertilizer that's becoming increasingly used in and in a valuable crop for them it actually helps reduce the cost of the cricket input because they have an alternative revenue source from the the waste output from our processing standpoint we actually have zero waste uh, we convert the entire cricket into into protein. And they said the only thing is we pull out the, the water, so it's a dry shelf stable powder.
0: How do you compare to other alternative proteins? Pea protein, soy, which it's a whole nother can of worms, but yeah. some some of the other types.
6: Yeah, so you we look at it on a couple of different fronts. So if you look at it from a uh, a protein standpoint front, um, we're going to be about the same in terms of protein concentration and you can kind of lever that up or down based on on the processing that you do from a uh, vitamin and mineral standpoint. Uh, we're going to come out on top. Uh, Our our protein is extremely high in in B12, carries above average calcium, iron, magnesium, and potassium concentrations, most of which are going to be lower down on a a plant protein basis. The most uh, similar aspect that you'd have would be maybe a whey protein that that does skew higher on calcium and iron. They don't have uh, much B12. They are not a natural prebiotic either. And they also have all the downside of the environmental effects.
2: I guess that brings up, or leads into another one, we're talking about the, the, The attributes of the protein. So, is it full, full range of amino acids, including all the ones that you can't get from plants?
6: A way is traditionally everything you need in a human. This is also. Yeah. So this would the most most similarly uh, be the one-for-one replacement for for a way. Actually, has a a stronger profile than than a plant would. I I don't trash plant-based proteins on that because you can technically do a blend of plant-based proteins to kind of piece together the amino acid profile. This doesn't delivers it all at once.
2: And how does it look on a, uh, as an ingredient? I guess you've gone through FDA approvals for it already seeing as how you're on
6: the market, but what does it look like on the label of an ingredient packet? Uh, yeah. So we actually label it as a Cheta domesticus on, on the back of our, uh, our products. And we encourage others to do the same. So similar to when you buy something with probiotics and it might say L basilicus in it, just literally just the Latin name, we, a Cheta protein, a Cheta is actually the the Latin name of cricket. And that's why we use a cheddar protein as the name of what we do. Um, Common parlance, uh, no no concerns using it. We don't have to call it anything different or, or change that.
0: It better than calling it crickets. Let's be honest. It does,
6: it does land better for consumers. <laughs> From a regulatory standpoint, in the US, there's actually very little uh, regulations around food shockingly little. So it's generally regarded as safe. In the EU earlier this year, uh, crickets were accepted as a safer human consumption and available to use in everyday products. Singapore followed suit about a month and a half later. Australia is already there. Uh, So most of the major markets where there would be regulation potentially against it have now approved it. In areas like Southeast Asia and Central and South America, it's already a commonplace food item. What
0: does big mean for you?
6: What does big mean for us? Mm -hmm. Uh, So we we think about it this way, right? Um, I I mentioned you know we talk about food fortification. Uh, If you were to uh, uh, fortify just uh, the the world's wheat supply at just four percent a cheddar protein we would add as much protein to the world as the entire global bovine supply. Now, to put that in perspective, when we make our products, we fortify wheat. We sub out uh, about 20 to 30% of wheat for a cheddar protein. If you did that globally, we would double the entire protein supply of the world. So for us, when we think of big, we think about being able to shift the entire world's protein availability through fortification with, with a cheddar protein.
0: How much of that protein is then consumed by animals for animal agriculture, though? What percent of that's actually human consumption versus none?
6: I, you know, I honestly don't have the answer to that okay. you know, I don't, I one don't on that one. Yeah,
0: because yeah. they kind of intentionally do the low protein stuff. For, uh, anyways, well, so, either way.
6: Yeah, when I talk about that, I, I we look at things like wheat, which is typically human consumption, as opposed to, say, corn or soybean, which ah. is going to skew a lot more towards, uh, towards animals.
0: And there, there I show my weakness on that side. Well,
2: any last questions, folks? I do have one, I guess. Um, so obviously, it's, it's, it's a growing space um, with a lot of movement, at least in, in uh, local markets here. Um, what's your route to market? So you've got some products in the market already. How are you looking to scale?
6: Yeah, so what we find is that the branded products that we have in market work is a, a tip of the spear for us. So while it would be great for us to go out and, and build the next, you know, Mondelez or Kellogg's, what we find is that when we have our branded products available and selling in major retailers, of world, uh, what we find is that it dramatically opens the door for us as an ingredient platform from food service providers or restaurants for third party manufacturers. And so that's actually the route that the business will ultimately run and grow. Uh, and so our, our best go to market is proof point with uh, branded packaged goods to open up the, the ingredient platform side. Uh, and that offers a flywheel for us. The more we process, the lower we can reduce the price. And then we already have a highest quality of anybody that we've seen. And so we're able to continue to fuel that and drive better adoption.
2: Do you have any traction, I guess, with big, uh, big manufacturers?
6: Um, yeah. So I had some interesting conversations. Those are, those are typically longer run. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I spoke with the head of R and D for Ferrero uh, who thinks what we're doing is very interesting. He oversees all their cookie and, and, and bake brands uh, around the world. Uh, him and I have a follow-up conversation. Uh, I believe it's next week. Uh, that is something that might take two or three years, but uh, the fact that they're bringing us in to talk to the entire R and D team for cookies is, um, you know, Certainly farther along than I think others might have gotten when they're talking about insect protein.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well then thanks for thanks for printing. Thanks for presenting. And now we've moving on to our last company of the night. Thanks so a Jay- <laughs> Jamie with uh Rare Earth Global talking us through the hemp supply chain and trying to to change things up in a big way there. Let me get Jamie and the co-founder Sunit on board, Jamie's going to be presenting and Sunit's here for technical support as well as to add uh, quite a bit to the conversation, I imagine. Thank you, Matt.
7: Can I I confirm
0: that you can see my full screen? Yes, we see Rare Earth. It's looking good.
7: Awesome. Thank you. Hello, everyone.
0: Hello. Take it away.
7: Thank you. My name is Jamie. I'm a co-founder at Rare Earth Global. We're an award-winning climate tech company, tackling carbon emissions and food food security by providing access to a sustainable and scalable protein. Okay, it's not saying that. Uh, That's better. There we go. So this is a world first, a hemp protein formulation made from the seeds of the industrial hemp crop. Uh, but optimised for the fish farming sector, also known as aquaculture. So the fish farming sector is one of the fastest growing food production systems in the world. So it enjoys a compound annual growth rate of just over 10% a year and is destined to be worth about $420 billion by 2030. Now, obviously, this is excellent news for the aquaculture sector, save for the fact they have a terrible issue with their carbon footprint. Now, Um, The vast majority of those emissions that they have an issue with do come from the ingredients they source. And the pressure that which are under comes from shareholders, customers, as well as the financial institutions that support their growth. Now, one of the primary ingredients they use is soy, which also happens to be a leading cause of illegal deforestation. And these companies simply have to make a change. This presents a huge opportunity for businesses like Rare Earth. Soy is a multi-billion dollar sector within aquaculture and demand to replace it is one of the most pressing needs. Hundreds of millions have already been spent on alternative proteins such as single cell uh, insect proteins. But the reality is, is that they face serious challenges. There's regulatory hurdles, very high capital expenditure and obviously price. Um, So we've overcome many of the regulatory hurdles, certainly with hemp. We're able to avoid high capex by repurposing existing machinery to produce our product at low cost. And through our zero waste approach, we can reach price competitiveness with soy. So so by switching to our hemp product, and this is the key part, our customers can achieve a 41% improvement on their carbon emissions. So a little bit about the team. Uh, my name is Jamie. I am, yes, very much the leader and team builder here. I have over a decade's management experience and I'm responsible for government as well as customer relations. I've secured demand for hundreds of thousands of tons of hemp products. I also have Suneet Shivar Prasad on a call with us today. He wrote a world leading research paper on hemp protein use within the aquaculture sector. He's also been a guest lecturer at Cambridge and in the Institute of Aquaculture. And finally, we have uh, Stephen Wong, who is an experienced CFO with a corporate finance background. He's built the first of its kind operating model for this space, and he's got previous startup experience in import distribution and foods. And we've also assembled a wider team of advisors and we're the only team in the world that truly understands the full production cycle of both the hemp supply chain as well as fish feed. So at the beginning of this year, we became the first company in the world to develop a hemp protein formulation to replace soy and fish feed. And this was a part of a feasibility study that we undertook. Our project was ultimately featured in over 28 different publications and culminated in us winning an award at the Global Aquaculture Awards 2023. A month ago, we were awarded a further $330,000 uh, in order to pro- uh, progress that initial uh, feasibility study into a commercial pilot and what that money allows us to do really is um, is to continue sort of building out the, the bench of R&D and data that we have. And um, the way we work as a business, most importantly, is that we license our data and IP to farmers and processors to produce our products, which Rare Earth ultimately transacts and sells uh, to our customers. One minute warning. Initial interest we have is over is worth over $50 million from the largest salmon producer in the world. We've also onboarded in the last two months two other salmon producers, and we diversified the aquatic animals we work with by onboarding a, uh, a trout farm as well as a shrimp farm. And um, With our current seed round, this is our first external round of funding. This will enable us to move from a commercial pilot and accelerate movement into full commercialization and enable us to deliver to multiple clients across multiple locations. So as part of the outcomes from this $1.9 million equity round, within the first 12 months, we'll expand uh, and sell um, some quantities of product, about 20 tons. Within the year after that, we will look to increase that amount to about 1,500 tons of product. And time 20, 20 is period 24-month period, we'll have $5 million under annual recurring contract. Thank you mm-hmm. very much for your time. It's
0: a nice number. Let me, uh, let me bring in the other panelists here. And while I'm doing this, why the fish space when it comes to uh, fish food aquaculture or the food for the fish? Why did you go there versus other traditional routes?
7: Uh, I could could say this one so initially it was really to do with the fact that the fish feed sector was well it's the most it's the fastest growing and the most profitable of all the animal feed sectors Um, and they were the ones who are really sort of making moves to improve the sustainability of their supply chains we noticed across the animal feed space I expect that's got a lot to do with um, yes, the the profitability and efficiency of that specific food production system. So it was, a, it was the, yes, easiest place uh, to land for us to begin with.
2: I guess the question about, I got, think, I think I did I hear right when you said that your product
7: can be competitive with soy. Is Correct,
2: it plus, yeah. one for
7: one price competitive with soy already? No, it, it's not one for one. So we spent the last several years obviously cultivating that crop, um really focusing on crop optimization and that really takes the form of data collection so we've been collecting data from our own projects as well as a number of other companies around the world we're also cultivating the crop collecting all that data which we'll look to develop into a crop optimization model so as part of this round we're hiring a data scientist and really looking to optimize yes the outcomes from farming Furthermore, we have a zero waste approach, which you probably heard me mention earlier. So what that means specifically is that by growing this crop, what we have is a seed from which we extract the protein. But we also have about something between 10 and as much as 15 tons of stalk material being produced. So we use all that material, uh, we shred it and we have customers lined up with part of a consortium with over 20 construction companies, the largest in the world. And what we'd be looking to do is we scale production of our protein as use the residuals for low carbon or even carbon negative construction materials. And obviously, as a final point on that, we have a co-benefit of carbon credit generation.
2: So the carbon credit generation is is, is a key part of the business. Uh, and then I guess the other um, products as well, you also would be basically trying to find markets for. So your profitability mm-hmm. comes from getting 100% utilization of the hemp and is it then, I guess at that point, is it then carbon is, is, is it then profitable or break even? or is it still dependent on the carbon credits
8: to make uh, everything work? Um, okay, good. Sorry to <laughs> we both uh, usually take questions at different times. Um, so we're able to on a small scale, produce price parity right now, but it's a very, very small scale that we've done. What we found is there's variability in crop yield and quality depending on which farmers you use and that's where the data comes into scale
5: Mm.
8: as far as finding other markets we had actually pre-sold the stalk or gone far along that about two and a half years of compliance with construction companies knowing that we can sell it today Mm. the reason why we start with the protein is that it's one product it makes it simple we get to some scale in the next year or two and we have those markets ready to sell into with very very minimal processing so it was kind of going through that process. So right now, carbon credits would help with profitability and over the next few years. And so the additionality point will come in. But as we scale by using multiple purposes, um, yeah, uh, there's kind of more option that side.
2: And the credits are coming from the shift from
8: Soy to hemp. So Soy has a, a, a replacement credit that we've looked at with Vera. Um, So if you're replacing it locally, as Jamie was saying, you have a minimum of 41% carbon reduction. That's just by localizing it. On the seed side, that's more more or less one-to-one with soy, but localizing it reduces emissions by that amount. Then you go into the stalk, per ton of stalk, you've got 1.6 tons of CO2 stored. And it's by using that in the long-term materials um, that you kind of get the carbon credit from there.
5: Nice.
0: But aren't you dealing only with the seeds? At this point
8: so what happens is that the stalk has to be grown in order to produce the seeds so as much as we're we're showing that we're, so for example with one of the buyers they're based up in scotland scotland and norway we're growing seeds we have waste product we have buyers we will start moving to transact with those
2: okay and i guess following from matt's question your business model is to be hemp suppliers or
8: so free, I guess I can answer in two parts, kind of uh, defensibility wise. So on, on the IP side, we, we're applying for patents over the actual formulation of how you make the hemp protein as well as in the final product. We have some processing IP that no one else uses at the moment uh, and that's to adapt exact, uh, existing machinery. And the bit that's a scale is actually on the crop yield side. So we look at each of those three things. So what happens is a customer comes to us, says we want to buy a product, one farming group is not enough to supply that. Can you manage the farming group? That's where we charge our margin. Then we license out our patent as well as data. This is how you produce it to a farmer. Um, and yeah, we just sit in the middle accordingly from that side.
0: Sounds like a lot of moving parts and a lot of different things for you to focus on at once.
8: It, it's, it's been okay because we, when you deal with professional farmers and processors, they're used to getting paid for a crop. So say the data is coming in on its own. We've already developed the product. We already have the buyer already in place. And so we're just enabling the market. So for example, the second largest market is Chile for, for salmon production. We've been in discussions recently with a guy who used to work with Canopy Growth, one of the big IPO CBD companies for him to own basically a rare-earth chili franchise. They'll manage everything. So it, it makes it very, very easy to scale. We have licensable data and patents that Any other partners who kind of want to get a local market, they can license that out.
1: Um, Can I dig into that uh, footprint part again, I guess, because you you say um, the biggest, you know, CO2 savings come from localizing the production. Um, How does that look for your salmon farms? Then can you grow hemp close to them? How much overlap is there salmon farms, you know, in, in proximity of arable land and the conditions
8: that you need? So, we've already onboarded a group of around 11 farmers up in Scotland right next to buyers. We've already grown and we're processing and supplying smaller quantities. We have enough arable land to scale in Scotland to meet some of the demand, um, but the demand split across Scotland and Norway. So, one of the other buyers, one of the big trout buyers, um, was introduced as to the Norwegian government where we're looking to do a project there to scale as well. So. The answer is yes, we can provide a majority of it very, very close by. It might go a little bit further, but we're talking the difference between coming from the Amazon and actually coming from a little bit further down south into north of England.
1: Okay, yeah, understood. Um and on the on the other products, I think on your website I've seen quite a wide variety of, of products that can come on, Mark and alluded to how how many moving parts there are. But that part of processing the stalks, do you have on IP there, are you selling them to people who can make or valorize that, that waste?
8: Exactly that. What we did was we, we had a few different products we could produce and then we got validation from the market who wanted to buy the bigger quantities and then we focused. So we're looking at the seed and we're looking at a product called hempcrete. But in order to do the other product from the plant it's the same first stage process. So we're able to give it to plastic manufacturers, for example, and let them incorporate into their supply chain.
1: Okay. Um, going into the traction that you've got, you've got a uh, salmon producer, I think you said you've got about 50 million in annual revenue that they would provide to you. Um, how far is that conversation? Do you have LOIs? Um, can you elaborate a bit on that?
8: So we, we have LOIs. They put match funding into the grant, additional amount of another seventy to 100,000 to extend the commercial pilot. Um, we, we started, we're going to start soon negotiations on contracts, but the larger buyer, we managed to find a smaller buyer of Salmon Feed who's kind of a bridge customer. So we're moving towards that um, contract because we can do that ne- this year, next year, to be able to bridge into larger quantities of the bigger buyer once.
1: With the bigger buyer, take equity for that much funding?
8: Yeah. out mute
0: oops who's your biggest competitor
8: so we've got different competitors that you look at so on the insect side um that's an alternative protein um some companies have raised 100 million that's the most advanced feed that's out there alternative protein for salmon for example uh what we've been told is that we're better for various reasons one um the the fish has high absorption rate and digestibility our protein than the one. So alternatively, it can become cheaper because of that. And two, the capex required to scale is is different. So it's very, very hard for some of these companies to localize. So on the insect side, we've been indicated by several of the largest buyers in the world across different fish side that it wouldn't be a like-for-like competition. They're kind of looking at slightly other ingredients within the fish feed palette. If you're looking at hemp companies, there's a company in Canada that produces the most amount of protein globally for hemp, and it's a human consumption market. They have expertise in seeds, they have expertise in protein. The difference between them and us is that they built it for a very, very high value market. They do not, not optimize the seeds for enough waste product to be able to bring the price down. And second of all, the research and development needed for the agriculture industry is different from the human consumption market. We're looking for filet quality, Looking for different things than humans are. So, at the moment, as I say, we were featured in the Times as the world's first company to do this. So, we're leading the market. Um, there will be other com- competitors, but at the moment we have IP, we have a 14 to 18 months head start, and we have some of the biggest buyers in the world that keep on approaching us to work with us. So, it's just a question of us kind of capitalizing on that demand.
1: How hard is it for someone else to make protein out of hemp seeds then? <laughs>
8: It's, it's possible to make protein out of hemp seeds. Uh, what's hard is actually making the balance of protein the formulation we're looking at because commercial fish farms want to make sure that they never lose stock. If you're spending maybe turnover 30, 50, 100 million on selling product, you need to make sure when you feed a new product to the fish, it's okay. We're the only company that have, got, have gone through those commercial tests. So we're the only company that can sell a formulation into that. Um, so in the near term, we have the patent that can protect us. That's speed files been going through. But the the biggest defensibility is actually the dual offtake and the crop yields that we have. And that's the way we scale quickly as well.
0: And while we're going through the last of the questions here, folks, if you hop on over to thestartuptank.com slash live, we've got a poll going for our climate startup of the night. Right now, Evo Electric's winning. So if anyone needs some catch-up points, be sure to send your people their way uh, that way. Um, Niels, Hendrik, any last questions for uh, Rare Earth and Sunit or Jamie?
2: No, oh, I think it's a, it's a nice presentation. Circularity is nice. I think it's um, 100% use of a product is also really a, a nice place to start as well. So I'm looking forward to watching.
0: One question I would have is how do you avoid the race to the bottom? Because in uh, food stock space, you care about quality and you care about lowest price possible.
8: So initially, that's the conversation we had with a lot of the buyers. They said it's a great protein, but unless you can get price parity, then... Yeah, it's a nice to have. Um, What we found is that that actually added benefits to the product we're producing. So we're not a one-to-one replacement. We're actually a better replacement than what we're producing, which means that we can have increased price on that. And that's just to do with the formulation itself. So if you're looking at one-to-one with soy, the impact's not what the ingredient is, it's how much the fish can grow and what the quality of the fillet is afterwards and the amount of feed that's equal. So for example, even though fish do eat insects, we're finding that more fish actually eat the pellets that have our product in, which means you have less wastage. So the impact's kind of two things. One, it's the kind of final quality of the product and two is the cost basis of actually fish farming itself. Um, So hopefully that will kind of protect us from from going to kind of race to the bottom. Um, It's more kind of a premium product in the long term. And for the
1: product- Sorry, just uh, do do your customers value those premium features? I mean, if you say, they say, oh, everything's nice to have unless you have price parity. What proof points do you have that there is a gap for a premium fish feed product?
8: Uh, just based on the conversation, the discussion. So, for example, if we're looking at insects, um, they have to go through Label Rouge, which is one of the kind of standards that you need for very good quality fish to be sold in the market. And salmon are usually one of the premium fish. Those that company, as well as the company we've spoken to uh, who produce trout, they're willing to do premium products because that's part of their branding. If you're looking at kind of mass buys, it's different, but the feed market we're in, the quality of fish, et cetera, they all look for quality and extra bits of branding around around sustainability.
0: And what percentage of the the food stock is actually what you guys are producing? Is it hundred percent coming from you or is it an additive with other things?
8: So we're looking at a range, we're testing and optimizing at the moment. So a range between 20 to 40 for premium products and around up to hundred percent for kind of mainstream market for fish farms. It depends on which of the fish farms. Some, some spend millions a year kind of developing new formulations, others just want a slight improvement. Um, see, uh, sorry, a quick question from Arush. Um, so far there hasn't been any allergies, side effects, et cetera, for the protein. Um, It's a standard protein for human consumption market Though we've adjusted the formulation for fish feed market. What we've actually found is uh, the extra health benefits for the fish and there are no anti-nutrient factors because the biggest problem they have is if they feed a product, the fish eat it and the stomach enteritis happens. It's it's a very, very bad thing because it kind of uh, shortens the lifespan of the fish.
7: There's a wider point to your question, uh, Matt. So soy was originally introduced to replace fish meal, ideally. But unfortunately, when they undertook the testing, they realized for most aquatic animals, it wasn't a suitable sort of total drop in replacement for fish meal. So we're at that stage now where we are exploring just how effective this product is. And we've had incredible results from the fish that we've looked at. But obviously, there are many more we have to evaluate to really understand, you know, how far we can get to going towards 100% hemp protein. But more than likely, it will be balanced to begin with with other things. And exactly. I guess
2: a question that follows from that. So Matt suggested the rest of the bottom as uh, as one possible uh, direction that this could go. Uh, what about the opposite? Uh, how do you secure supply in in a uh, as they start to compete for other other products coming from these markets? I, I guess because direct to human pr- uh, consumption from things like uh, hemp protein is is obviously growing and things like this as well. How do you make sure it's going to the fish and uh, I guess which is then a, a lower quality feed that directly to people.
8: So, we wouldn't see ourselves as direct competitors because what happens with the outdoor growing is you have a different farming setup if you have to go to the human consumption market. There are a lot more regulations, there are a lot more kind of barriers as far as processing. So, your cost basis will always be higher. Um, as I say, the biggest growers are kind of in the middle of Canada at the moment, but our model's been to try and get farming data and adapt it locally. And we work within a crop rotation model. So, we've kind of reverse engineered other crops that they use show the impact that they have. So we don't need specific land. So for example, if you're looking at soy, it's expanded into the Amazon, they they cut down trees, they need specific land for it. For us, we can, we can go to a kind of neighbor farm, as long as a professional farmer, and we can fit within a rotation where we're only taking up maybe 10 to 20% of the land in a certain area, but it's always being rotated. So it's never kind of a monocrop culture. Um, so at the moment, um, we don't see that as a huge challenge. And, just to add extra colour to it. One of the biggest tobacco groups have approached us in one of our regions to look at expanding and replacing all of their crop tobacco with our crop. So those are the kind of crops we might replace. Otherwise, it's crop rotation.
7: Yeah, and I guess on that final point, you know, with farming, it's um, we've been growing now for several years in the UK. Last year was the worst drought we've ever had. We still achieve those minimum thresholds of output. And in fact, over the last three to four years, whilst we've been growing various farms, they tend to include it in a rotation with winter cereals, and uh, we've they've actually seen the farmers we've been growing with an increase in the outcomes or the crop yield for their winter cereals of anything as low as five, but as high as twenty percent, and that's to do with hemp's ability to, through its tap root system, to help improve structure within soils regenerate soils to some extent as well and the fact that we don't use any pesticides or nasties with, with growing it's a very versatile crop but it's a weed and it can be grown super widely so yeah we need to
0: replace weed so so the way to go forward perfect we've got protein we've got uh interesting interesting models any last questions folks Thank you well then that's that. This is going to wrap up the end of our pitching session. So for folks tuning in, be sure to hop on over to the startuptank.com/live and cast your votes. It's uh Evil Electric seems to be running away with it with 60% of the vote. So it, you've got a couple last minutes as we go through our panelist overview of the night. So here's the section where we kind of mention the two or three companies we're most interested in investing in or most interested in doing a follow-up meeting. For founders, be sure that you post that in the YouTube and not in the Zoom chat. So if there's any VCs or folks who are tuning in that want to schedule meetings with you, post your email address or post your Calendly link there, and hopefully you can set up some meetings. But now I would hand things over to Niels and say, Niels, who do you see as the as the one or two most interesting companies from, from your perspective?
1: Um. Yeah. I think we've seen seen really strong pictures. I would probably agree with the wider audience. Evo electric is incredibly interesting. uh I love retrofitting things um because you know we don't have to build everything new so there's there's a very clear use case there, and I think he's, they have very good answers as well to where this is used and how much the traction speaks for itself I think um but equally, I think. Hoppy Planet and Rare Earth Global, I would probably tie for second place. I, I liked a lot what they were doing. Weirdly, I found both of these companies have super misleading names. When I look at Rare Earth Global, I would have expected them to sell me metals. Uh, and Hoppy Planet, I would have expected something made out of brewer's spent grain. Um, so I don't
0: know. I think there was the cricket hoppy. There's this I guess the cricket the- is
1: hopping, yeah um but then if if, you know if i can give a little bit of feedback especially for rare earth global i found the pitch 100 times better than the website and i think focusing on this this fish feed section um was so much clearer so maybe if they can rebrand that a little bit it makes it a lot clearer what they do um but yeah no both of them really really good so i couldn't decide which one would be like my, my number two
0: Hendrick,
2: get up. I agree also with, uh, the, with the audience, Evo Electric, definitely with the traction, it's, it's hard one to move past. It's, um, I guess they're a lot later stage than, than the other startups, so it makes it a little bit, a bit unfair to compare them head-to-head. Head. Um, I guess I'd be interested in actually having followers with Happy Planet, Rare Earth, and also Brew as well. I think all three of them working in the food space, there's definitely a place for all three. Uh, but I also agree with Neil. It's hard to split between Happy Planet and Rare Earth I think the um, maybe one thing that might give the edge to hobby, um, apart from the, uh, I was actually waiting for a kangaroo reference there when I first saw an M come up, and mm-hmm. I was expecting something to do with, with uh, with hops and beer, uh, spent grains et etc. Or, or with um, other waste in this space. So it was uh, it was nice to be surprised to find that they're working in a different area. Um, yeah, but I think it's. It seems like a, an easier route to market i guess it's something that i hear a lot more space in and certainly see a lot more traction and movement in that space also um i guess so uh, years ago that i had uh, a bit of experience in the agriculture space um but yeah I, I must agree also with what neil said in regards to the names they were really confusing rare earth i really was expecting some kind of lithium replacement or or some other kind of uh, uh, a new wave mining company um
0: but let's be honest, with the Hoppy Planet one, I think that's actually a bonus, because if anyone gets upset that it's crickets and they didn't know that was Asheta, you can say it's right in the name.
2: Absolutely. And I love, mm. I love that it's going into a uh, an ingredient, a functional ingredient, as opposed to the uh, the, the basis of it, because people do even, even think that it's there. They're going to go for the high-protein pasta or the high-protein other, other material.
0: Mm. Bingo. It. And my yeah, kind of my thoughts exactly. I would say Evo electric. I would give that I would give the spot to as well in terms of the winner. Everybody I think performed. I think all the companies are actually very promising. It was quite a it was quite a strong lineup on that side of things. If you if you made a chance, congratulations. If you had the chance to pitch, we screened a lot of companies to get to you guys and uh, if you want to set up potential meetings with any of the companies, again, the startuptank.com/live, the company should be posting in the in the comments their calendly link or their email or I mean they're founders of companies. It's going to be founder at domainname.com if you want to set anything up with them. Uh, N- Niels, where's the best place for people to find you, learn a little bit more?
1: Um, you can always find me on LinkedIn. I guess I'm quite active there. Otherwise, if you just want to know more about the program, I head to Um, And yeah, feel free to just send me a connection request on LinkedIn. Always happy to connect.
0: And Hendrik.
2: Same same place as Neil's LinkedIn's the easiest place to reach me. Uh Hendrik Dix. And it's uh look for the one that's at Mass Challenge. It's uh the other way also is to um if you're looking for information about Mass Challenge, is uh, masschallenge.org. Uh and I guess we're split by by country into different verticals for uh, for those in food, then the Swiss office is probably one of the best places to be.
0: Yeah, with Nicholas. And if you guys are looking for a partner in climb to help you grow scale, land some customers, clients, partners, pilots, go to market and really come out of things with a bang, check us out forward.vc slash accelerator. We've also got our climate VC database, our climate solutions database, our deal share program for climate VCs. All of it is on our website and more at forward.vc, the number forward.vc. We invest in companies that move the world forward. And if you want to pitch on one of our upcoming sessions, we do this every two weeks, uh, the startuptank.com for more details and to apply. And thanks everybody. Now it's, uh, it's time for some food. We've had plenty of food talking here. And uh, wish you all all the best. Cheers! Thanks for tuning in to another segment of the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, presented by Forward VC. I'm your host Matt Ward, serial founder, climate investor, and partner at Forward VC's angel syndicate, investing in companies that move the world forward. To learn more about me, download my free growth and fundraising guides, or to get help scaling your company, please visit mattward.io. If you're interested in pitching on a future segment of the Startup Tank please visit thestartuptank.com. And if you're a credit investor interested in investing alongside us in top climate and impact companies that move the world forward, please visit forward.vc for more details and to apply.